0: The Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, episode 112. The iconic Sitco sign outside of Boston's Fenway Park has neon tubing that stretches over five miles in length. But don't be fooled, the nearest Sitco is still two miles away. One, two, three. I'll show you Paris in the morning. I'll show you. And
1: you don't have to
0: worry we're going Hello, travel nerds, and welcome to the Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast the show that teaches you how to travel more while spending less. I'm your host, Travis Sherry, and today's episode is part two of my interview with professional basketball player Alex Owumi, who has one of the most interesting and incredible stories I've ever heard. If you missed part one, Alex talks about how he started his basketball career, what made him end up playing professional basketball in Libya, and the events that led him to being caught right in the middle of one of the most important historical events that has happened in our lifetime, the Arab Spring, and he was at the epicenter of the overthrow of Colonel Gaddafi. He opens up in an incredibly raw manner about his struggle for survival during this time, how he was trapped in an apartment with no food and no water for over a week, and the incredible emotional toils and struggles that he went through during this time. So if you missed part one of the episode, you can find that on iTunes on Stitcher. However you listen to this podcast, you can also find it linked up at extrapackofpeanuts.com/pod. So I highly suggest you listen to part 1 of the interview before listening to part 2 because you're going to want to hear his whole story. Now, let's get right into part 2 of my interview with Alex Owumi. In the midst of no food, no water, going crazy, all that, that you were able to have that epiphany that you were, and, and that you were able to flip your mind view when so many people would, you know, it would just sink lower and lower and lower and lower. And as you mentioned, you know, it, it can only be through your faith that you were able to do that. Because without that, you know, it, you probably would have just slipped away or you would have decided, you know, this is, this is it. Talking about then doing anything to get out, how were you able to get out? Because, you know, people listening are like, okay, well, you've spent 15 days in the epicenter of this, you know, of this uprising. What then happened to get you out?
1: Well, it was funny because I started, I started getting like these signs. Like it was like, like just little things that just had me thinking like, oh my God, you know, God put this in my my way to help me do this. But, you know, like I said, you know, we had a, there was no electricity, no internet. So what I would do was I would literally like cut on my computer just to see if I had like some type of internet or if anything was working. I would cut on my phone and try to call out, call my, um, my coach, try to call America if I could call anybody, just call, call, call. And one time I had left all these devices on and I was shutting them on and off to save my battery in case for some reason I could call out or some reason I made it out of there. So I literally left it on for like hours at a time. And out of nowhere, as I'm laying on the floor, I hear a beeping noise. And I'm like, what is that? Because you know, I hadn't heard this noise for, you know, for days. And I'm like, what is that noise? And it's at the bottom of my like on my gym bag. And I run to the phone. And it's my teammate Mustafa that was calling me, who was also in Benghazi, but he was three or four miles out. Like he stayed in a whole nother part of the city. I saw the name and I was like, there's no way like this is happening. And I picked up the phone and I heard this voice. And once I heard his voice, it was like a shot of like a five hour energy that just hit me. And he's like, you know, Alex, you know, how you doing, bro? He's like, what, you know, what's going on? You know, we're just, you know, we're just talking. And when I say something, I, you know, I, I have no energy. So when I'm talking to him, he, he, know, like, he knows I've been going through it. He was like, he's just like, you don't sound good at all. And like, he knew when I told him, I was like, bro, I don't know what's going to happen next. Like, how uh, am I supposed to get out of here? And Like, I was crying to this man on the phone. And, you know, he basically told me our team president had got in contact with him. And he wanted me to somehow get to my team president's office. And I kind of looked at him, you know, like somebody says something to you crazy on the phone, you look at the phone, you're like, are you out your mind?
0: <laughs> right, like, there yeah, how's that going to happen? Thanks yeah, for the like, advice, I, but... I
1: looked at the phone, I was like, I was like, are you out your mind? I was like, I, there's no way I can get out of here. I was like, bro, I can't even, I'm even scared to leave my own front door. So uh he basically told me, leave your phone on, I will call you back tomorrow. Shut the phone off. He called me back the same time, around the same time. And he said, if you can make it to the office, he's gonna try to get a driver for us. So, you know, at this point it's like, I might be here for months. You know, that's my mindset. I'm like, I might die of starvation here. So I, you know, basically um, navigated, you know, walked out, walked downstairs to my building, which is seven flights. It took me forever. Cause you know, I had lost so much weight. My knees were kind of sore from, you know, malnutrition and I get downstairs. In front of my building are uh, four children guarding the building door. And these kids, when I got to Libya, were the kids that were in the street playing soccer or when I was coming back from practice. You know, they would call me LeBron James or Kobe Bryant. They just wanted to be around me. You know, I'm kicking a soccer ball with them after practice. And these, were, these kids were like 10, 11 years old. And it was crazy to see how... These kids literally could go from children in a two-month, three-month span, were holding AK-47s, machetes, and handguns, guarding this building. I put my head outside the gate, and one of the kids shoots me back inside. Go back, back, back. And I tell them, I need to get to Mr. Ahmed's office, my team president. You know, everybody knows who this guy is in the city. And... You know, he kind of, the kid kind of looks at me like, no, go upstairs. You'll be safe. Just like that. So I was like, no, I need to get home. I need to go see Mr. Ahmed. And these four kids, I mean, they did something for me that, you know, to this day, if I see him, I hug They literally navigated me through, uh, uh, through these back roads. You know, just imagine one kid in front of you with a, with a handgun, another one behind you. And two of these other kids under my arm holding me up because I was too weak to run, holding me, navigating me through the back rows to get to my team president's office. You know, when I'm falling down, tripping over things, they literally holding me up, telling me, run, run, because I was too weak to even run myself, you know. And, you know, finally we made it there to my team president's office. And when I got into the office, I saw my teammate Mustafa and, you know, the look on his face when he saw me was, you know, it was irregular because he had it, you know, when I got to Libya, I was this kind of big, strong guy. You know, I looked, you know, I was, you know, I took pride in my fitness, but when he saw me, I hadn't shaved for almost a month. I mean, my teeth were yellow. I couldn't brush my teeth. My eyes were blush out red. You know, I looked like a, a totally different person. And he was just a shock. He was just a shock about what he saw. You know, we, we hugged each other. We cried. You know, we cried for minutes uh, because, you know, we thought we would never see each other again, you know, and it was a turning point. But it was like, you know, basically it was like when I saw my mother, when I got back from this and I hugged her and I cried, it was the same feeling. I felt like I found my brother again. But, you know, Mr. Ahmed basically hired a driver to take us to to a refugee camp, in Saloon, Egypt, which is on the Libyan-Egyptian border. It, the journey is usually six or seven hours, but for us, it took 12 because there were a lot of roadblocks at the time. You know, there were a lot of mercenaries that the Gaddafi family hired that were trying to flee Libya when Benghazi got taken over by the people. So, you know, we had basically had to go through five or six checkpoints within this journey to Siloam, Egypt, this refugee camp of us being pulled out of the car. Our bags being thrown in the desert, you know, because, you know, we, they, we look like two guys who are trying to escape. You know, they don't care if we play basketball at this point. You know, they, they're pointing machine guns in our faces. Uh, we were, we feared for our life, you know, like we really feared for our life. You know, at this point, you never know, you never know what's going to happen within the next hour. You're going to be alive, you know, but my whole motivation, be honest with you, was to get back to my family, get back to my mother. You know, some of the best times I've had as a, as a child was me shedding tears, but 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 being able to hold my mother's hand while I'm doing it. You know, and uh, me not being able to do that was really depressing to me. You know, so my motivation was to get back to my family by any means necessary. To be honest with you, that was the way I was thinking. If I had if I had to take somebody's life, I had to do it. You know, that was my mindset. You know, I would not go back to what I was in you know, weeks prior. So, you know, that was basically the way we got out.
0: And and you got to Egypt then. So you had to go through these checkpoints. I know in the the book and some of the articles that you've written, you know, you mentioned in detail some of the checkpoints that were difficult to get through. And, and as you just mentioned here, times where, you know, you thought at the checkpoint, that was it. Like you weren't going to get through. They were, they were going to shoot you or, or, you know, send you back or whatever it was. And when you got to Egypt then and you made it, It might be hard for you to describe, but what was the feeling when you get to Egypt? Is it is it relief? Do you think you're safe? Are you still worried? How did you feel when you actually got into Egypt, out of Libya?
1: Um, literally, when I got there, we pulled up to these gates. I mean, military everywhere. Like I was like, okay, this is the beginning of the journey. Like I finally made it. Like that's what I was thinking. I was like, I finally made it. I looked at Mustafa, and we just smiled at each other, and you know. I'm thinking it's a smooth process to, you know, to get through the refugee camp and get on a bus and, you know, go to Alexandria, get on a plane and get home. But that wasn't even the case. You know, this refugee camp, this safe haven, literally was a prison. So, you know, they basically housed all these refugees because it was an influx of people just trying to get out of Libya. Like it was just hundreds and hundreds of people going through. So they use this prison as our, like a, a customs, or checkpoint for people to get through and get out. And then, you know, while we get through the gates and imagine just hundreds of people, hundreds of people sleeping outside in a prison yard, literally a prison yard. This is a, like a max prison in Egypt on the border. And we're sleeping in a prison yard in the desert. You know, after a while, my behavior became very erratic. You know, I said a lot of things that I'm ashamed that I did say that I can't uh, say on this podcast. But um my behavior came erratic because some pe- some of these people had been there for days, some weeks, like literally weeks, to, like being told that they were going to get home or their consulate was going to pick them up. But no, like these people were literally sleeping outside in the desert. And, you know, if anybody has been in the Middle East, the nights are cold. The days are hot, but the nights are very cold. And we were forced to sleep outside. And like I said, you know, being, you know, the, the arrogant American Basketball player. My behavior became erratic. I said some language that I shouldn't have said, and I was talking to these prison guards and these mili- these military people. Like I was, I ran supreme over everybody. Like I got first dibs to get out of here, and they didn't like that, you know. So you know, it got to one point where guns were pulled on me, and they took my passport, and they threw me in the bottom of the prison cell. Literally, like a, a like it's like solitary confinement. Like just threw me in there, and I got in there, and I was like. What is going on? you know, no one knows it was dark. there was literally urine everywhere, rats in there. I was in there for two hours just screaming, like literally screaming like it was just so much fury and rage that was in me that I had to get out. It was like I had hit rock bottom like you know I was just that i was I had hit, hit rock bottom. I didn't know what I, what my next move was. I was gonna be stuck in this refugee camp for weeks and you know I had was back to square one again that basically was how the you know the refugee camp
0: was. And how long did it take then for you to get out of the refugee camp? And was there any epiphany really in the refugee camp where you thought, okay, I'm back to square one. You know, I, I did all this work, risked my life multiple times to get out of Libya. Now I'm in Egypt. Did you have that same kind of feeling where, where your mindset shifted and you just thought, okay, I'm going to do anything to get out of here, but I'm going to do it in a way that obviously isn't detrimental to me and, you know, screaming at guards and things like that. Or was it, did something else happen that got you out, you know, even before you could have that kind of epiphany or mindset change?
1: But when they finally let me out of the, uh, out of this, this, this prison cell, you know, we got back up to the prison yard and, you know, we, we were sleeping outside for three days. And on the third day, I mean, the rain was ridiculous. I mean, we're sleeping in mud. You know, I had my, my book sack on front of me because, you know, I had my, you know, my laptop, you know, the, the important things you need. You know, I'm looking and I'm looking at my teammate and I'm I'm telling him, I'm like, we're going to be here for a long time. Like, we need to make some type of move to try to get out of here. And, you know, he's kind of looking at me like, like I'm joking. But the look in my face is like, I'm very serious. Like, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm serious. If I, if we have to escape illegally, this is what we have to do. On the third day, it's, it's almost, you know, it's almost four in the morning. And there's a gate in the back of the refugee camp where that wasn't guarded at certain times. Because obviously, if you're a prison guard, you're going to say, or a military, you're going to say, Nobody's gonna dare escape illegally, like you know, <laughs> like nobody. Right?
0: They've got here. They're not gonna try to, yeah, risk their life to, to yeah, go further. Like,
1: yeah, they're not gonna risk their life to go further. Nobody will be that dumb. So the gate wasn't guarded. It. It's, it's uh, um around those times early in the morning. And I was, you know, as days went by, I told myself, I said, listen, nobody's there. We need to try to get through this gate somehow. I mean, this gate was it was a huge gate, like a twelve foot fence. Like it was ridiculous. So we literally made a run for it and hopped the gate. Like, we were gone. Like, it it didn't matter if I got caught. It didn't matter if they caught me and, they, you know, they they threw me in a prison. I was going to get over that thing and just run to that other side of the refugee camp where I could hear buses coming for the Egyptian nationals and people like that. I wanted to get over there. Like, that was my main goal. So we hopped this fence, like it was crazy how that we navigate through like these bushes and just this mud and on the other side of the refugee camp there are a bunch of buses but they're only for Egyptian nationals so if you're Libyan or if you're American or if you're from Cameroon or Nigeria you have to have the right paperwork you have to work with your own consulate to come there and then you can take off but we boarded a bus Illegally, like we basically get to this bus and the bus drive, we walk, I walk up and the bus driver asked me for my paperwork and I show him my passport and he was like, no, it's, it's only for Egyptians. And then I take out the rest of the cash I had in my pocket. It was like $300 or something like that. And I hand it to him and I'm like begging this man, like, please, please, we are American. We want to get home. Please, can we basically get on the bus? So now it's almost four in the morning and he has us in the back of the bus and you know, we're there. You know, these buses are leaving for seven, so seven a.m. So we're just basically there, sitting on the back of the bus, and that's basically how we got out of the refugee camp. I mean, it was just crazy, you know.
0: So, where did the bus take you, and what was kind of the next step? I mean, after you got out of the refugee camp, you were just in "quote unquote" regular Egypt, and could go from there.
1: Yeah, yeah. Basically, it was it was funny because that bus was headed for Cairo. My coach Sharif asked me; it was living in Alexandria, and he wanted me to come to Alexandria to be with his family. Because this is a guy who left Benghazi. like He kind of fled, but he left without me. And I was kind of frustrated about this. And he felt bad about it. He felt bad about it. But he didn't know what I had been through. So he he basically wanted me to come to Alexandria, be with his family for a couple of days, and then he would put me on a plane back to America. But for some reason, he had some type of feeling that. I had been in some type of danger, obviously, Obviously, but he knew, like, he kind of knew, like, there's something wrong with him. You know, he needs to, we need to, you know, kind of see how, you know, he's looking. We need to kind of get him to a doctor to see if he's in the same, if he's in the same mindset. So I left that bus and I left Mustafa on that bus and he headed for Cairo. And I boarded another bus with this bus driver who we had a whole nother argument about that. And then when I told him I had to get to Alexandria, so he takes me to another bus. And I get on that bus, and this bus heads to Alexandria. So it's a seven-hour journey. And when I finally get to Alexandria, and uh, I see my coach, he meets me at this bus stop. And, you know, he gives me a huge hug, and he apologizes. for did not believe really me, because when I talked to him, he was, on, he was on his way out. Like, he knew everything was going to happen. And I, I kind of didn't get the heads up, you know, basically. And he left me. so he kind of felt bad. You know, when I was with him and his family, like we were just talking, but when I was talking, he hadn't, didn't know he was talking to He was like, you know, basically talking to a new person that Alex I knew wasn't like this, you know, I, you know, I, I, the way I looked was crazy. Like I said, my eyes were kind of messed up. I was, I was talking about things that I usually wouldn't talk about, but Within that whole process, he says something to me that about me going home. And when he said, to be honest with you, I don't think you would want your family to see you like this. And at the time, I was like, you know, I was like, I'm just going to go back to America. Things are going to be the same. For some reason, I listened to him, you know, within that process. He kind of wanted me to stay there till my mindset got right and my body got right until I calmed down and just basically took in everything that I've been through. And within that whole process, he knew that one thing made me happy in life. And this is, this comes back to when I was a kid and when I was playing basketball just for, the, for, for fun and not for money or, or notoriety. And he told me, he said, you know, to be honest with you, you know, I think you should play basketball again. And at this point, I think, you know, this guy's crazy. Yeah, you know, I, was, I
0: mean, you, your whole thing was, I need to get home. You've done basically every step, except finally get on a plane to go home to America. You are right there. It's not hard. You can easily do it. And here, someone who wants you to stay in a country that had its own turmoil. And you're still in the middle of the Arab spring and everything like that.
1: Exactly. He basically tells me to stay and play basketball. And you know, I have, as far as I know, I was done with basketball, you know, that was my, I had played my last game in Libya, I didn't care about the sport, my thing was just to get home and get my life back on track, just be a regular human being again, but in the process, you know, as I listened to him, he's a very knowledgeable man, very smart man, I listened to him, and everything he was saying started making sense, but I didn't know how to explain this to my family. You know, at the time, my dad was sick. He, you know, he was battling multiple myeloma. He's had four different forms of cancer. My mother was depressed. My brothers were depressed. Um, you know, I didn't know how to explain to my family that I was going to stay in Egypt, who had his own uprising, and still play basketball. Because it would have kind of made me look selfish. But as I explained to my mother, I, I you know, I kind of told her that the way I look now you, know, you would be more depressed if I had to come home to you, and live with you like this. And I told her like this could be the first step of me getting back to where I need to get. It's gonna be a long road for me, Mom. You know, mother, it's gonna be a long, a long road, and, and it's, it might be years till I get back to where I was again. But I think this is a stepping stone. This is the first step. And you know, we, me and her, we cried. We cried on the phone. We cried. But she understood. Like she she kinda got it. she was like, you know, I always told you that to do whatever makes you happy. But that was the same way. But my brothers didn't understand it. My brothers, you know, <laughs> who uh big guys like me kinda look at it kinda looked at it like, Okay, you need to stop making mom and dad depressed. You need to stop making your mother cry my brothers were threatening me like, (laughs) like, you know, I'm going to come to Egypt myself and I'm going to drag you on this plane (laughs) and whip and throw you a beating, you know, if I, if that's what I have to do. But, um, you know, as time went on, everybody understood, like they understood what had happened to me. You know, they kind of knew that I needed to get back to where I was again. And, and basketball, when I started playing again in Egypt, I took a different approach to it. I said, I'm just going to do whatever makes me happy. The day that it gets to me saying, Oh, I'm only doing this for a check is that they have to put down the basketball because I, I do a lot of, I, you know, I do a lot of things. Well, you know, I, I, I know how to make money other ways, but the day that it gets to that again, I'm done with it because I don't want to be, go back to being depressed anymore. You know, that was my main goal. And You know, eventually it worked out for me in Egypt. Uh, I was on the team that was the underdog team. Barely, we barely were going to make the playoffs. So when I got with this team, we eventually won 13 straight games, made the playoffs, and, you know, nobody had us picked to win a championship, to win a championship in Egypt. But, you know, eventually, as the underdog, we... We did it. We won the championship in the Egyptian Basketball League. Um This was uh, 2011. And, you know, I brought them their first championship in 30 years, Um, you know. <laughs> and it was just magical. And I was happy. You know, I was happy. At the end of the day, I was happy. And, you know, I was just happy that I could use the game again to make myself happy and get back to where I was as a child and get back to where I was. 13, 14 years old when just dribbling a basketball was just what I wanted to do after school, you know, whereas in my 20s, I was trying to do it just to make a living, you know, but eventually I was happy again, and today I'm happy, you know, I tell this story, you know, it does get emotional when I, you know, go around the world and I speak and speak to kids and schools and places like that, but it's therapeutic for me now, yeah. like, you know, I'm sitting here talking to you, this is a 45 minutes of therapy we just had. And you know when I when I'm done, you know I can say that, you know I'm ha- you know I'm happy. I'm extremely happy with the way my life is turning out. Where my life has turned out. And you know if you would have asked me two years ago would I had done that, you know would I do everything all over again? I would have tell you, you know you're crazy. But you know I kind of figured out that you know I don't know what the next man would have did in my situation. Would they had take? Would they had taken his life? when he had gave up, when he had went outside and tried to navigate through a war zone and got killed or kidnapped or something like that, I'm happy God put me through that. Because I wouldn't want the next person to go through it. And he knew I could go through it. So that's literally why he put me there. And that's just the way I look at it.
0: How long were you in Egypt, you know, after you got there and you started playing, until then you finally decided, you know, to then come home to the U.S.? How many months were you there?
1: Um, I got to Egypt... March, uh, early March, and I didn't get home till May 20th. So I was there for a little while. I I was there for a little while.
0: And the basketball was therapeutic for you there. When you got home, how was that transition? Because obviously then, you know, you've come a long way. You've kind of used basketball to get yourself back to some level of what you were like before. I don't know to what level that was, but you, you took those two and a half months to do that. When you got home, was it was it kind of like opening up the wounds again? Was it was it really difficult, or how did you kind of go through that healing process?
1: It was it was tough for me because when I got home, I was coming off winning the championship. I was happy, but it took a turn because I thought I could just go back into my regular life. Like when I when I finished the season, I thought I could just go back, hang out with my friends, go out, train. That's when it got really bad for me because. I was in the now with all the things that I had developed, such as, you know, I developed really bad anxiety, like really bad. Obviously, I got, I was diagnosed with PTSD and I needed help. You know, my family was telling me you need to talk to someone and I was in the now, you know, as I, and I was in the now. So as the months went on, I thought I could just, okay, do the summer in my off season and get back to playing basketball. But that was the hardest three or four months of a summer that I've ever had. I went into it deep, deep depression. Waking up in cold sweats, not being able to sleep till five in the morning. Some days I wouldn't shower because I was so used to not leaving an apart- my apartment in Benghazi, like closing my shades. Um, I went into a deep depression. It, w- it was hard. It was hard for me. And when I finally figured out that I needed help is when things got better. Going to class is just having hearing people's stories about their, you know, that their, their, their post traumatic stress and, you know, hearing soldiers talk about it that way in Afghanistan and Iraq. And I would go to these groups and I would see other people who had the same feeling I had, you know? Obviously I needed magic I I needed medication and I'm not one of that, you know, you know, like I I'm a stubborn man, so I'm gonna say, Oh, I can get through it on my own. But I when I knew I needed these things, it got better. So I had to put basketball to the side. Like I literally did not play that next year because I said I I need to focus. I need to focus on my life. This was bigger than basketball now. It was it was my life. There was no way I could see myself getting on the plane, going back across the water to another country and living a regular life playing basketball. I had developed all all these things within my body, within my mind, that were preventing me from living a regular life. And that's where I was, you know, at that time. And, you know, the transition was tough. It was really tough, man. It was really tough. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to be a regular person anymore. I was seeking spiritual counseling. Obviously, I had, you know, a therapist. But like I said, when I figured out that I needed help, that's when things got better. But I was at a now, I was bad. It was really bad.
0: And did the book then come about because it was a form of therapy? Was that, was it therapeutic for you or was it, I mean, obviously, it was hard to write, but was it therapeutic? Did it help in that whole process?
1: It, it it did help. It did help the whole process, the therapeutic process. But the person who convinced me to write the book was my mother. Because, you know, writing has been my passion my whole life. I've been, you know, you know, I could, I could write fiction like it's nobody's business. But my mother would talk to me about... The people who helped me within my journey, the kids, the, the men on the bus who, who basically taught me about things going on in the Arab region, the driver, you know, just people helped me within my journey. And she asked me one day, okay, so who's going to tell their story? It's like, we, we know about you, but who is going to tell their story? And that's when it hit me. I was like, there's no way that I've been through this and I needed all these help from all these people and they're just going to fade away like that. Like I will have no memory of them. Like, you know what I'm saying? So that was part of the reason I wrote the book. I didn't want to write the book at all because I knew I didn't want to relive, relive those emotions. And I'm a very private person, so I didn't want to go back into my childhood. But when I finally decided to start writing the book was summer 2012. Obviously, you know, I published a company, got in contact with me. And writing the book was probably one of the hardest things I've done. In my lifetime, because I had to literally relive these emotions page by page. When I'm talking about starving or eating cockroaches, my body just goes into shock, you know? Mm, Yeah. And sometimes I cried, you know? And within the process, I was writing it. I was in my first season in England playing. And I would literally, before a game, be in a bathroom stall crying because I had just written four or five pages on a bus ride to a game. And within that two hours, I had to relive this emotion that I had to go play a game. So I would literally be in a, in a bathroom stall sitting there, like not wanting to come out, crying. And my coach would find me in here knocking on the thing like he knew what was going on. And I was just shaking because my anxiety, man, like, you know, I just couldn't, you know, I couldn't function. But I, obviously when I wrote the book and it was finished and it came out and then people started reading it and. I was getting all this love on Facebook and Twitter. People telling me how much of an inspiration I was. I was going to these schools to speak. I was like, you know, I I think I made the right decision. You know, I finally, I finally felt like, like my decisions were getting better as a human being. You know, whereas I, I was just going places just to, just to go. Maybe it sounded cool, but I was like, you know, I found my purpose. I'm like, you know, this happened for a reason, and then I'm here to just inspire people all over the world.
0: Yeah, it's incredible. And it, I'm so thankful that you were able to come on and, and tell your story and, and write the book and then get to the point where you can speak about it and you speak all over the world to different groups about it. And, you know, I just, I really, really appreciate you coming on. What do you have in the pipeline then for the book that people should be looking out for either personally or professionally?
1: Well, you know, obviously, it's the um, last. Less- Week was the um, was the one year anniversary of Gaddafi's point guard October I mean October first. We have a movie deal in place. I can't really speak too much about it because it's going to be a big press release coming out within a within a month. I think a lot of people should be looking out for that. Uh, we've been working on this for two years. We have the actor. We have the production company. It's going to be a, a a real big big budget movie, a major blockbuster. Also, I'm just you know speaking all over the world. I have a TED talk coming up this Saturday in London, and i'm uh trying to post a live stream for the TED Talk on my Twitter feed um I'm doing it in London, but you know to be honest with you, there's just a lot of things going on there's a lot of things going on with me um you know, I would love for people to get the book not not just because of the basketball aspect of the book, because to be honest with you, this is not a basketball story. This is a story just about a human being. Like, you know, this is a story about humanity. I just want people to just to walk in my shoes when they read it for page, by, when they read it, page by page, man, to be honest with you. And I hope, you know, when you read it, you could pass it on to somebody else to help inspire them, because it's really a great story. And I, I was blessed to tell it. You know, I'm blessed to tell it, to be honest with you. And, you know, it puts a smile on my face when people write me on Facebook or on Twitter and tell me, <laughs> thank you. You know, you 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 you, you kind of changed my life. Or a teacher tells me, "Oh, would you like to come and speak on our school and just to motivate our kids?" You know, those things kind of motivate me and make me happy. So, you know, that's where I'm at with it right now. You know, like I said, the book is available everywhere: Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, Kindle. There's an audio book. The audio book is great. You know, it's available everywhere. I just, you know, just you know, just want people to just take a look at it, just read it. You know, just tell somebody about it. Pass the word. And, you know, that's
0: most important. Yeah, and that's amazing. And what we will do, guys, if I can get the TED Talk from Alex when we launch this show, I will put all the stuff that we've talked about in the show notes, of course. So you'll be able to link. We'll link up to that. You can get that at extrapackofpeanuts.com slash point guard. So we'll make it point guard so it's easy to remember. And Alex... Congratulations on all the stuff that's happening. Of course, thank you so much for coming on the show. It truly is an amazing story. I just I appreciate you coming on and sharing it. I know it's very difficult to talk about, but the fact that you've been able to put your life back together to write the book and to speak about how hard it was and to be so open and honest about it, it, it really truly is inspirational.
1: I appreciate that. Thank you for having me. This was real good for me today. Thank you.
0: And, of course, good luck the rest of the season with the Worcester Wolves. You've got a new fan over here for sure.
1: Thank you. Thank you. We're defending champs, man. So, you know, we're going to try to repeat this year.
0: Awesome. And guys, if you are more interested in Alex's story, I highly encourage you to pick up a copy of his book, Gaddafi's Point Guard. We'll link that in the show notes. As I mentioned, extrapackofpeanuts.com slash point guard. You can get that on Amazon and Barnes & Noble and everything as well. Don't forget, we are doing a show every single weekday, Monday through Friday, and we are looking for input on show topics and guests that you want us to have us on. Alex was a recommendation from a listener, and I'm just blessed that I got the chance to have a chat with him today. So you never know who's going to be out there. So guys, let me know. Trav at extrapackofpeanuts.com or you can tweet us at packofpeanuts. And of course, you can leave us iTunes reviews, not just because I like getting them, but we can get the stories of these amazing guests that come on out to more people. So thank you everyone for the support. Thank you for making us the number one rated travel podcast on iTunes. And until tomorrow, happy free travels.